Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It is a remarkable day. Of course, it's the day that we honor and celebrate the legacy of Dr. King. And so, of course, white supremacists are rallying, (laughs) you know, to rant about guns in Virginia. Surprise, surprise. Roan Kenyatta, who uh, writes regularly for op-ed news and, and frequently calls into this program, has published an op-ed over at Op-Ed News today. What would MLK think today? And I think it's fascinating. He says, uh, you know, he points out this is the first and only national holiday honoring a black man. The first time was 34 years ago, January 20th, 1986. He says, I think Dr. King would be astonished at the fact that the United States is involved and has been involved in perpetual wars. One of Dr. King's last speeches was entitled Beyond Vietnam. He would be astonished to see the millions of innocent people killed you know, in all these years since his day, many of them children by the United States as a result of these wars. He'd be astonished at the number of black people in America who continue to be summarily executed via extrajudicial process by state assassins. So those cops are still killing black people. The social metrics, Kenyatta points out, are not significantly changed, are in many cases worse. Police abuse, misconduct, inferior schools, unemployment, poverty, poor health care, discrimination, incarceration. He'd be perplexed that the United States has sunken to a level of moral depravity that would allow an imbecilic racist pig to be elected president in the wake of the Obama presidency. I agree. I think he would be, I think Dr. King would be alarmed by the State of the Union. Actually, Joe Madison is going to drop by and then we're going to get into a little more extended conversation of these issues having to do with the state of race in America and where we're at and how we're going forward. And um, I'm looking forward to hearing, hearing Joe's thoughts on those things. And so, you know, your thoughts on the legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, certainly you're more than welcome to call in and share your thoughts on this. Michael in Oakland, California. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? Good morning, Tom. Hello, Michael. Look, um, we the people own America. Donald Trump is just one person chosen for this particular journey right now, today. You know, um, Dr. King, I'm 73 years old this year, mm-hmm. and um, Dr. King, I'm from Chicago originally, and Dr. King had a lot to say about bringing people together with love. Donald Trump is evil. He's very evil. He's trying to bring us back to the times of the Civil War, you know. All minorities make up this country. It's so very important that black people hold hands and pray and stay together during this time. We own the country, not Donald damn Trump and his gangster friends. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, thank you, Michael. And gangster is it. Thank you very much. And in fact, that, you know, Lev Parnas is now saying he's more afraid of Bill Barr than he is of foreign oligarchs that he has thrown under the bus. Foreign oligarchs who, in some cases, have been implicated in, in deaths. I mean, you know, but Bill Barr scares him more? Whoa. Marta in Big Bear Lake, California. Hey, Marta, what's on your mind today? Um, I was just listening to Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech on democracy now. Is it called mm-hmm. Beyond Vietnam? Yeah. Okay. And it's just 
it's I've never heard anything so wonderful. It wasn't about you know just uh, peace and 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 love and you know let's all work together. It was actually confronting militarism, uh, poverty, and racism. I think he called those the three greatest evils. And my question is, who embodies those values? Who embodies that courage? Martin Luther King Jr. confronted militarism. He wasn't. He didn't play party politics. And he pushed the Kennedys to, uh, to you know, look at, at issues that they were not really willing to take on. And he pushed it forward. And to me, the one, and so did, you know, FDR and some of the other most, most you know, greatest people. Um, when I was studying English composition, working on my master's, I learned about consensus and distances. And consensus is great. But it will not achieve progress without dissensus. And Martin Luther King Jr. works not from the inside, from the outside. It's time for us to have courage because, uh, you know, both parties are militaristic. The Republicans are worse. But uh, we have to stop this. And 55% of our discretionary budget going to a lot of it, the, the highly lucrative defense industry. We don't need that. We need health care and free college. So absolutely, Bernie Sanders is the one with that courage. And he has worked with the Democratic Party. He hasn't been just, you know, uncooperative. And that is just a lie. Yeah. So well, he's also courage. worked with Republicans in the past, too. Things like, you know, he he worked with Ron Paul to get the Pentagon audited, for goodness sake. Absolutely. So, so the, the lie by the corporate media is that he doesn't cooperate enough. And there's a reason they're saying that, because they love militarism. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Marta, thank you very much for the call. Good to hear from you. Karen in Waynesville, North Carolina. Hey, Karen, welcome to the program. Hey, Tom. I have a family story about Dr. King I wanted to share today. Okay. I'm a third-generation pacifist. My grandmother became a pacifist after World War I. She was a suffragette. But anyway, my mother back in the 50s was the vice president of the NAACP and were white. And I think at that time the NAACP was, I mean, there were a lot of, of other people that were members uh, of different colors. So anyway, back in the 50s, she was vice president of the NAACP and Dr. King came to Columbus, Ohio, where, she, where we lived. And I was a toddler, so I wasn't part of this, but my next older sister went to the event, and she was probably five or six years old. And at the end of the speech, they were passing around the collection plates, and he said, now, I know some of you don't have a dollar in your pocket, but if you'll come up and give me the change out of your pocket, I'll give you a dollar to put in the collection plate. And so my sister trotted up with her coins and gave them to him. He gave her a dollar to put in the collection plate. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a couple pictures, you know, in the family albums of my mom with Dr. King. And um, the day he gave the I Have a Dream speech, the entire family just sat and watched. And my mom had tears running down her cheeks the whole time. I mean, it was just mm -hmm. an amazing moment. Yeah, yeah. He was an extraordinary man. Karen, that's a great story. Thank you so much for calling and sharing okay. it with us. I appreciate okay. it. Thank okay, you. thank you. Bye-bye. Uh -huh. uh, yep. David in Miami. Hey, David, what's up? Hello, Professor. Yes, your YouTube question was, what would Martin Luther King say or ask? I say he would ask, where is the basic income that Nixon and Friedman agreed on? Where are the jobs and justice I marched for? Yeah, ironically, basic income was something Milton Friedman, you know, who probably most of the bad things about our economy can be traced back to. But, you know, that was something that for a while he was a champion of. And, yeah, I think that, you know, basic income or at least ending poverty would be right at the top of the list. Thank you, David. John in Los Angeles. Hey, John, what's up? Hey, Tom. First off, I respect you. Got a lot of love for you. But I got to say something. I kind of. I mean, I, and I understand because Joe Biden said it best. White people in general do not understand and will not be able to understand racism. So 
So I understand why you can't hunt. You, you see it, but you don't see it. Even you do. You see it, but you don't see it. This country, as a black man, this country never was right. It never was fixed. Sure. It started off with people who uh, wrote, yeah, they wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitutions and the Article of the Constitutions, but they all had money. Well, and half of and them owned slaves. The Constitution, or had, from, with, from a billionaire standpoint, because at that time they were today's billionaire, hmm. would be back then, because you own, if you own human bodies, you were that rich back then, uh, uh, just a foreign place. So, if, and if you read the Constitution like a billionaire, well, yeah, they, they wrote it right. But these, I mean, you say the founding fathers, and it kind of, it, it, it's, a, it's glass in my veins when you say it. Because I know the truth about all of them so-called founding fathers. And if my father was anything like that, I would have assassinated him. Yeah, I get it. I get it. And John, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I have no shortage of my own blind spots, and, and I'm sure that that's true of probably the, the vast number of white people. John, thank you. Kenyatta, hey, I was quoting from your article to start the show. <laughs> Welcome. Hey, Tom, listen, you know something? We have a mutual friend, and uh, I was on my way. I was commuting to my office this morning, and I got this text message that you had given my article a plug on your show and i gotta tell you i had to pull over i, I was shocked and uh, i'm very honored i wanted to thank you for well, that. i was reading from as it. a result you, of, you wrote a good piece it's over at opednews.com if people want to read it that's outstanding thank you sir and, and i i do want to say this uh because of your show over the years i have come into contact with some very very intelligent very powerful thinkers you don't know how much stuff that you effect under the waves that happened. Well, and, thanks. You want to recap your piece? What would MLK think today that's over at opatnews.com? Well, you know, I don't want to do that, Tom, because actually, if anyone wants to read it, they can read it. It's a, you, a, you know, it's, it's not a very long piece. But I do want to say this about MLK. I think that were he alive today, he would be very disappointed, as I mentioned in the article, that so much not only has not changed, since the time that the I have a dream speech, which, you know, in and of itself, constantly being propped up to me indicates white supremacy because he made several other speeches that were very critical of the United States, not talking about dreams. As I mentioned in the piece, in order to dream, you have to be asleep. Hmm. Dreams cannot be realized. You must be asleep to dream. And so were he alive today, he would find not only that his dream was a dream, but in fact, it was a fantasy. And I will tell you this, he would not only be surprised and disappointed, I think, at the country at large, he would be particularly, and I'm going to step out here and get myself in a lot of trouble on this one, Mr. Hartman, but he would be particularly upset with black people in this country. He would be upset with us that we allow our young people to listen to music where references to women are the B word and and references to one another are the N word. He would be very upset with that. When you you look back at the time, and and a lot of people don't know this, as uh, before Martin's uh, assassination, he was moving uh, further and or closer and closer to a Malcolm X type philosophy. The holiday itself, to me, is a form of appeasement. And you had a caller on just a moment ago. I think his name was John. And I, you know, when he said it's like glass going through his veins, every time he hears our founding fathers, you know, it's one thing for me to hear white people say that. And if, and if white people are proud of what they have done in America and they're proud of this country, they have every right to be. But what insults me is when they expect me to feel like they do, when they expect me to stand for that flag, knowing what that flag has done to my people. That is what's insulting. And when I hear black people sit up and talk about our Constitution, you are the only people in this country that won't part of that Constitution because you were property. And that's never been rectified legally. No one's ever told me that somehow that changed. So you see, this legacy continues. And I think that, this, that, that were Martin alive today, uh, he would not be uh, pleased at all. Yeah. yeah. Across the board. I get it. I get it. Certainly, uh, you know, his Beyond Vietnam speech and many of his other 
comments on, in particular, on poverty and Poor People's Campaign and everything that he was doing, kind of, so many of those efforts have basically been just even taken apart in the last few decades. It's just, it's, it's, it's astonishing. Kenyatta, thanks for the call. Oh, uh, quant- uh, quantitatively in the, last, uh, in the last few years, yes, yeah. absolutely. Thank absolutely. you very much, Tom. Yeah, good talking to you. And, uh, his, and Kenyatta's piece is over at opednews.com, O-P-E-D-N-E-W-S.com. It's titled, what, would, what MLK Would Think Today. I used to think new year, new me, and now it's more like new year, new wrinkles. You know, with every passing year, we all look older. It's just biology. But now that's all changed thanks to Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's magic in a bottle. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. Just apply this powerful serum to problem areas, and within minutes, voila, a new, younger you. And the best part, no surgery or Botox. It's all natural. Simply put, I'm blown away by the results. Ring in 2020 with Plexiderm for smooth, younger-looking skin in minutes. And it goes on clear, so nobody even knows you're using it. Leave your under-eye bags and wrinkles behind with Plexiderm. Go to Plexiderm.com and use my code HARTMAN with two N's at the end, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, for half off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling one 800 7417998 again that's 1-800-741-7998 or visit plexiderm.com today and use the code hartman at checkout this is the tom hartman program our book today is jailbreak out of history by butch lee uh, this is from the first chapter jailbreak out of history harriet Focus on amazons about why we deal with real women as myths girls who never really existed Yet and again, all are around us and that we can't bring ourselves to see. Because seeing through white men's eyes is about non-vision of ourselves. So let's deal with a real Amazon. Think about Harry and Tubman. Take six months. In fact, take a year and think. Break it on down. What does it mean to be the most famous new African woman in U.S. history? What does it mean to be stuck in that lie? What's the meaning of being famous while being hidden and disfigured and dissed? Let's jailbreak Harriet Tubman out of white history and place her in Amazon and New African. Her story, her story, her people's story. Harriet Tubman's life is a live weapon placed in our minds, showing us what it means to be an Amazon, which is why the capitalist patriarchy has forbidden us to touch on it for so long. In this, maybe for the first time, we can see Amazons as a future force in a clash of peoples and nations not as myths, but as players in the whole difficult course of world politics. We can also appreciate the bittersweet tang of reality as the peeling away of layers of propaganda and disfigurement which have hidden Harriet from us exposes how much we assume and how little we have known. New African women have already pointed out the significant pattern of Harriet's exclusion. Cultural critic Bell Hooks said recently, I mean, if we could recover Ida B. Wells and Harriet Tubman to the extent that we've recovered, say, Zora Neale Hurston, I think that's an important contrast because people want to bury that revolutionary black female history. Her historian Deborah Gray White connects Harriet's treatment to a larger pattern in the mainstream history of slavery in which black women, quote, were reduced to insignificance and largely ignored, end quote. In examining the influential historian Stanley Elkins, she points out, quote, That Elkins seems to omit women altogether was accentuated by his description of slaves whom he identified as part of an American underground, those who never succumbed to Samboism. Among those mentioned were Gabriel, who led the revolt of 1820, Denmark Vesey, leading spirit of the 1822 plot at Charleston, and Nat Turner, an omission conspicuous by its absence, was Harriet Tubman. If Elkins had really been thinking of slaves of both sexes, He would hardly have forgotten this woman, who became widely known as the Moses of her people." Patriarchal capitalisms, which only want Amazons to be exotic myths about forgotten ages, have hidden Harriet Tubman in her own fame. They both trivialize and exceptionalize her. These are tools of oppressor culture. The stripped-down and censored version of her life is told in elementary schools all over the U.S. empire. So much so that everyone thinks they know her story already, although they don't. Harriet Tubman was born in slavery in Maryland around 1820. 
She escaped to the north when she was 29, but kept returning secretly to the south again and again to help other slaves escape. For this, she became known as Moses. True statements. But by limiting her, it becomes clever propaganda against her and against her people. Where patriarchy has been unable to deny that women do significant things, it denies the full meaning of what we do by trivializing them. Mary Daly, feminist philosopher, traces the enormity of what patriarchy has done to us. In ancient Greece, the goddess Hecate, also known as Artemis and Diana, was sometimes known as Trivia and represented by a three-faced statue. That was also the name used for the intersection of three paths, which in many old cultures were the sites of mystical power. She writes in Gynecology, quote, In light of the cosmic significance of the term trivia as the crossing of the three roads and of the goddess who bears this name, contemporary meaning of the term in English should be examined. The English term, which according to Merriam-Webster is derived from the Latin trivium or crossroads, is defined as common, ordinary, commonplace, of little worth or importance, insignificant, flimsy, minor, or slight. Of course, according to patriarchal values, that which is commonplace is of little worth. For in a competitive hierarchical society, scarcity is intrinsic to worth. Thus, gold is more important than fresh air, and consequently, we are forced to live in a world in which gold is easier to find than pure air." End quote. So to trivialize Harriet Tubman, the capitalist patriarchy pictures her as an idealized woman by their definition, who makes a life of helping others. Thus, her deeds are squeezed into women's assigned maternal role as nurturer, helper, and rescuer of men, who then go on to do important things. But Harriet wasn't repping Mother Teresa. She wasn't even any kind of civilian at all. She was a combatant, a guerrilla, a warrior carrying pistol and rifle, fighting in her people's long war for freedom, a war that rocked the foundations of American society and that has never gone away. Think about what it means to be called Moses, which was the code name other new Africans gave her, and which became Harriet's famous warrior name in the anti-slavery underground. When we check out the Bible, we can see that Moses was a ruthless visionary, someone who forced the boldest changes and risks upon his people so that they could survive, who led them out of captivity. To put it simply, Moses was a leader in a time of war. So too was Harriet Tubman. The book Jailbreak Out of History by Butch Lee. Joe Madison is on the line with us, our friend and uh, colleague who does his show every morning on Sirius XM on uh, channel 126, Sirius XM channel 126, civil rights activist, joemadison.com, the website. You can tweet him at Madison Sirius XM. Hey, Joe. Hey, Tom. Can you hear me okay? It's just fine, yeah. Uh, and thank oh, you for joining good. the program today. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, not just Martin Luther King Day specifically, but more broadly, the state of America. I mean, as, as we are speaking, it's Martin Luther King Day, and there's a bunch of white supremacists rallying in Virginia, heavily armed. Well, you know, there's no irony there. The reality is that this is something they choose to do. Let me start with something I just told a, a group of people about what this should all be about if we're going to remember the, and deal with the legacy of Dr. King. One thing I would strongly suggest, if, if your audience hasn't done it and, and others, is you should read his last book, which was titled, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? And it was his fourth and, and last book before he was assassinated. And, you know, he, he talked about the importance of African-Americans and white liberals getting together and pressing uh, what he called were two realities, that there had to be this coalition of blacks and liberal whites and that they had to make sure that both political parties were responsive to our needs and the needs of poor people. But he also said we can't be oblivious to the fact that racism is going to be alive and well. And the reality is that it's not going to go anywhere, and it's probably going to spread as much in the North as it has in the South. 
I, you know, I'm not really worried about these individuals in Richmond as much as I am worried about the fact that I don't think most of us are prepared to create a movement. I think we have these, and King talked about this, that we have these moments, a moment over here, a moment over here. What we have to be prepared to do is what Dr. King did and those around him. And that is we must be prepared to create movements. And the difference between, Tom, a moment and a movement is sacrifice. Hmm. You and I, I am, and I'm telling you, that is really what was in, that's why he said, where do we go from here? Chaos or community? Look, the reality is you have to be prepared, Tom Hartman. Joe Madison has to be prepared and others out here. We have to quit having these moments and start creating a movement. But we have to ask ourselves, what are we prepared to sacrifice? There has never been, as Dr. King wrote in the book, there has never been a movement in, the, in human history which did not require a sacrifice. And then there was something else I told the group this morning, uh, today, that if you go to his book of sermons, uh, it's the book is titled Strength to Love, and he said, uh, nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. And that's what we're dealing with. That's, that's what you have in, uh, in Richmond today. That's what you had in Charlottesville. Uh, it, it's, look, it's a combination. And that's why these folks are dangerous. They, they, they are sincerely ignorant of the of the of, of of what this country has become and should become, and what be, as, and what's happening is that they're spreading uh, conscientious uh, stupidity, and that's what is really dangerous. And then I'll close with I mean I'll I'll end at least this one <laughs> part of the discussion with you to answer your question. There's something else he said, and and I really live by this that. Service is more important than success. People are more important than possessions. And principle is more important than power. And so after today, tomorrow, now let's be quite candid, tomorrow we are going to have to ask, will these senators in this impeachment trial, will they be principled? Or will they just do what they have to to stay in power? And I think that's what that's what Dr. King today he would have. Been, I mean, he, today he would have been 91 years old. Hmm. So people always ask, what is his legacy? And I think really, quite honestly, that's it. And and other than that, it's just been a day we recognize him. And then the question is, what do we do tomorrow? And what are we willing to sacrifice? Am I willing to sacrifice my job? Are you willing? I hear your music. Yeah, I'll be quiet. No, no, it's all, it's all good. I, in fact, I, I'd like to continue that conversation. And, and sure. that was, in fact, I, in fact, I made a note to myself to ask you, sacrifice what? Where, where, you know, where do we start with this? Joe Madison is with us. Who does his show on Sirius XM every every weekday, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Sirius XM Channel 126. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Joe's website, by the way, JoeMadison.com. We'll be right back with Joe. And welcome back. Joe, we've lost our SiriusXM audience for four minutes during the commercial break and our commercial stations, but we're still on Pacifica stations all across the country, and we're still live on Free Speech TV all across the country. So let's continue the conversation here. You were Absolutely. you were mid-thought when the music hit, I, I think, or maybe you were wrapping it up. You no, want to no, I, w I, w I really was wrapping it up because, uh, because I just think that at that last question you asked was a very interesting one. You know, what a, I think you wrote a note, what, what should we sacrifice? Yeah, well, um, you know, let's make this real. Let's, let's talk about concrete examples. I mean, what, you know, we all know what sacrifice has been done in the past. I mean, people have died. I mean, look at Martin Luther King himself, or Dr. King himself. But, and, but what, and, and let me tell you, and see, that's, 
see, there's where people see. That's the point. Sacrifice. You know what? Yeah, you may end up. Having, look, let me tell you something. We sacrificed when we went to Sudan, and we were on an airplane. You that and, could have been you and me. When when we that's right. When we were in South Sudan, we we were targeted by the Sudan government. We were on airplanes that I think you may remember. Man, there was the the the, the fuel was in was you know was in the same cabin with us. You know, because mm-hmm. they had to take off the that plane could have been shot out of that air any time. Yep. But we 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 could have been targeted. We would have sacrificed our lives for those people. And therein lies, I think, part of the problem. Look, be, let's be quiet. We sit up here and talk about John Lewis. Oh, we love John Lewis. John Lewis almost sacrificed his life on the on the Edmund Pettus uh, Bridge. John Lewis. Uh, sacrificed his career. The young men who uh, uh, did the sit-ins at the lunch counter—they were all—they weren't PhD students. They weren't professors. They weren't even upperclassmen. They were all freshmen. They were all freshmen, and they got kicked out of school. Never got their degree until they got it honorarily. You know, uh, decades later, people sacrificed their marriages. People sacrificed their careers. Um, you know, uh, I mean, we forget that, you know, you go marching down uh, from Edmund Pettus Bridge to Montgomery, Alabama at any time uh, you could have been uh, uh, attacked. And, and so the re- and look at again, look at what happens in Charlottesville. You know, the, those those folks sacrifice their lives facing uh, what what now has become. And I said I said it again and I'll, and I mean it. Um, you know, this administration, and I don't care what, what uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's niece says, I don't care what, it, you know, this transference, if I yell racism, then I'm a racist. Look, we've seen in the last three years that, that this administration has, in essence, brought racism from the closet to the front porch. And we're going to have to deal with this. So what is it going to take? Honestly, more than talk. And it means that, yeah, we've got to create a movement. And that movement is going to be, is going to cause, I mean, it's going to have some some dangers to it. It is. It is. And we'll continue this conversation in just a second. uh, Joe Madison is with us. Uh, JoeMadison.com is his website. You can check out his website. Check out his show on Sirius XM, 6 to 10 a.m., Monday through Friday, Channel 126, uh, Urban View. Welcome back. Joe Madison is with us. Joe, we were talking a few minutes ago about, or you were talking specifically about sacrifice. And then uh, during the break here, you and I were talking and, and you mentioned, you know, when you and I were in Sudan and what we were willing to sacrifice to be there. I just, just like a, a few hours, maybe an hour and a half ago, uh, blocked another threat on Twitter. It just it astonishes me, the the mm-hmm. uh, threats and sometimes open death threats that I get in email. I'm not trying to make myself out to be any kind of martyr, although, you know, Alan Berg uh, was the last big, you know, national progressive talk show host who was who was murdered back in the day. And I'm sure that you're the recipient of that same kind of hate. Talking about sacrifice, and I think that, you know, not to make us out to be martyrs or anything like that, there's a level of sacrifice that individuals can engage in just at the level of confrontation. You mentioned that the, this administration has taken racism out of the closet and brought it to the front porch. And there's a debate about whether that's a, a good thing or a bad thing, you know, whether whether it's causing it to metastasize and spread and deepen and, and, and recruit or when and I think there's no doubt about that or on the other hand if it's producing a, a, enough of a backlash particularly among people of goodwill uh, that this could be its last gasp or, or at least you know the the current incarnation of it um, what are your thoughts on all that and and and, yeah. and how you know if somebody confronts racism head-on you know that that's a sacrifice right there or or at least you know no no oh, no, no 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 look first of all catch what you're saying yeah. Nothing, nothing, nothing about racism is good. That's number one. Nothing is good. The reality is that, it, it, look, the reality is you have to eliminate it. You have to 
confronted. You have to be. Look, the reality is join the club. Man, I, look, I, I've, I've been getting death threats uh, be, before I began talk radio. Lord knows uh, what we, you know, with the trolls, we, we get it all the time. This comes with the territory. Now, here's what I mean by sacrifice. What would happen if, um, and, and I'll, oh, I'll, give you a, I'll give you an example. Sometimes you have to sacrifice your career. I worked at a radio station in Philadelphia where I was told by the president, owner, and the, and the program director that I couldn't talk about black people on the air. I could not talk about issues in Philadelphia about, about African Americans on the air. And you know what? I had to make a decision. Am I going to cow-cow to that kind of discussion? And by the way, I was the only black person on the air. Or am I going to, to, to speak up? So the next day, well, you know what I did? I talked about black folk, and I interviewed black folk. And the day after that, I lost my job. Now, that's sacrifice. That is sacrifice. And it took me a year. And that's what I'm saying to you. We have got to stop going with these moments. And we have to deal, if you're going to create a, um, a, a movement, and we cannot be oblivious to the fact that, that racism is causing economic problems uh, for the black community. It's causing economic problems for every, uh, for, actually for the, the, the entire country. Mm-hmm. And it's only going to be solved by confronting policymakers and making sure that they have programs, and it, and by the way, uh, it might cost billions of dollars to uh, resolve. Prop- and again, what was King fighting for at the time he died? Better jobs. Well, my goodness, aren't we doing the same? Higher wages, decent housing, education that was equal for, for almost anybody who wants it, and then voting, voting rights. Let's take, for example, purging. You know, look up the definition of purging. Purging can be done both violently and nonviolently. Now, by the way, and what people, the reason people purge is uh, they don't want undes- what they call undesirables to vote. Yeah. We used to be purged violently. Yeah. <laughs> we were hung if we had to vote. Now what they do is they purge us through all kinds of uh, legal or quasi-legal methods. Right. Joe, can you stick around or you got to run? No, I'm with you. No, okay, I'm stick around. You're listening to the Tom yeah. Hartman program. I always find these conversations fascinating. Joe Madison is with us, uh, the host on Sirius XM Channel 126, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. every, every weekend. Hey, my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Boating. I cover how the heartbeat of democracy depends on the vote. This book goes into depth on the racist legacy of our vote and the unique struggles of African-Americans, women, and Native Americans. I'm also on the road to the book tour for The Hidden History of Voting. Join me on Monday, February 17th in San Francisco at the, for the Berkeley Arts and Letters Series on Wednesday, February 19th at Town Hall, Seattle. Sunday, February 23rd for the Blue State Ball in Minneapolis. Friday, February 28th at Powell's in Portland. And Sunday, March 1st in Chicago. More information is available at TomHartman.com. Welcome back. Joe Madison is with us, one of America's most brilliant, finest talk show hosts, one of America's top 10 talk show hosts, too. You can hear him every day at Sirius XM, channel 126, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m., Monday through Friday. Joe, uh, welcome back. Uh, we, we, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, it's, this is, this is uh, uh, there's a campaign. I, I guess you've got links to it on your Facebook page and over on your, on your homepage at mm-hmm. joemadison.com. Uh, Edmund Pettus was the head, he was the Grand Dragon of the Klan in Alabama back in the day. And uh, tell us the story and, and, and what you're doing with this. Well, let me, let me tell how this started. You know, we're all, we're all praying for uh, John Lewis. And, and I've known John Lewis, gee, you know, since the time I was a teenager. And, and there was a time most people didn't even know who John Lewis was, and he had almost been forgotten. But we had, you know, Tom, I, I, I felt the, the country, both liberals, 
and and even uh, conservatives and and people of all stripes that are praying that he gets well. But it dawned on me. I said, you know, this man. I said, you know, we have got to remember John, celebrate John Lewis while he's alive. And one of the things I said was, let's take the name of Edmund Pettus off that bridge and put up the name of John Lewis. Now, let me go beyond what you just said. Um, uh, First of all, that bridge was not named after Edmund Pettus until 1940, and it was an in-your-face um, uh, kind of thing because Dallas County was majority black. It was just a way of saying who was still in charge by this white supremacist, who, by the way, was a brigadier general in the Confederate Army and, and believed that, and this, these are his words, that civilization could not exist without slavery. Um, and, and he was, and that was, and that was part of the dedication that, uh, quotes that were uh, attributed to him. Um, he, he, that bridge was named after him uh, 30 years, three decades after he had, he had died. He was a U.S. uh, Senator, uh, at the age of 70, at the age of 75. And you, and his, and he was the youngest of nine brothers, one of the brothers, was uh, a was the governor of Mississippi, uh, you know, during the Confederacy. He was a die in the wool white supremacist. No ifs ands buts about it. And that bridge was dedicated to him to send a message to the black folk who was that we're still in charge. So my position is that look, let's take that name Edmund Pettus off, just like we want to take Confederate flags down, just like the mayor of New Orleans took down Confederate uh, monuments and put up the name of John Lewis while he is still alive, because you know what will happen. I, I want him to live a long life. But you know what would happen if something happened to John Lewis today? Oh, we'd be naming libraries. We'd be naming street corners. We'd be naming everything. I want people to smell the roses while they're alive. And But here's the problem. It has to be done by the Alabama state legislature. They have to change it. It can't be done by the federal government. It has to be done by, uh, by Alabama. And I just hope that, that, uh, that people will, 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 con- will contribute to making uh, making this uh, this happen. So, so who a, who, a, who does okay. that, Joe? Who makes that decision? Is it the city? The Is it the state? Is it the county? No, the state, the Alabama state legislature. Okay. And then the and then the governor has to sign it. Mm-hmm. That's that that's how it that's how it that's how it has to be done. Now there are some people. I'll be honest. Who are saying no? Don't change the name. I don't understand this. That is too symbolic. What you can do for John Lewis is, you know, get uh, the Voting Rights Act uh, passed uh, and that the Supreme Court gutted. Uh, Why do we know, do we, both? We well, hello, <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey, hey Tom. That's exactly what I said. Yeah. You know, we, we, I, I said, wait a minute. You, it's not either or. Are you yeah. kidding me? You're absolutely 100% correct. And then somebody said, well, it's too symbolic. Well, my God, naming it, Edmund Pettus was symbolic. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so here's my point. When my grandchildren, if they would take a pilgrimage to, to Selma, Alabama, I would rather them look up on, that, on, that, on the name on that bridge. And instead of asking who was Edmund Pettus, I'd rather have them asking, well, who was John Lewis 50 years from now, 100 years from now, yeah. and have the name of somebody who, what did we talk about? Sacrifice, who almost sacrificed his life in order for people to be able to register and vote, because that's what that fight was about. That's what Bloody Sunday was, was, was all about. So I'm just asking people to... Get you know, put the pressure on the state of Alabama, and 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 let's do it while John. You know, can you imagine having John Lewis alive and seeing that 
his name, that name of Edmund Pettus come off that bridge. And most people, let's be quite candid, probably didn't even know who Edmund Pettus was. Right. Yeah. And but it's it's in my mind, it's the equivalent of one of these uh, uh, lost cause memorial uh, statues, you know, these Confederate statues. And, and it's exactly what it was. 1940. That's exactly yeah. what it was. That's exactly why that name was put there. You're absolutely 100 percent correct. Yeah. And it was in a, and it was also you know part of this larger attempt to to basically exonerate the Confederacy for the treason that they committed and, you know, and the crimes that they, you know, against particularly against African-Americans that they perpetrated for centuries. It's just remarkable. So people can, people can sign on for that. You've got a petition over at joemadison.com and on your Facebook yeah. page. Yeah. Yep. I, uh, yeah. And I think there are several other petitions going on and I don't think we could have enough <laughs> to be quite honest, Yeah. but it's, it, it's going to be, it's going to be a fight. Now they tried to change the name. I think a, a, a few years ago, um, to Freedom Trail or, or something like that. Mm. Uh, but my position on that is that's what they ought to name the highway from the the foot of the bridge to Montgomery, Alabama. Yeah. Um, you know, but but you know, I'm I'm willing to take it, uh, you know, take it as far as I as I can. But I just, you know, I I have tr I love John Lewis. He's a fraternity brother of mine. I have tremendous respect for him, and and I think if anybody's name ought to be on that bridge, uh, like I said, it, it ought to be ought to be him because he spilled his blood along with others yeah. uh, on on that on Bloody Sunday. There you go. And JoeMadison.com and Joe Madison's Facebook page, you can find uh, find a petition or links to a petition. Joe, it's always great talking to you. Thanks so much for dropping by today. My best to you, man. Thank and you. Let, let's be prepared to sacrifice. There you go. Yeah. And and to stand up and to speak out and and, you know, to have the courage of our convictions. Joe, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be back. Stick around. Joan in Nashville, Tennessee. Hey, Joan, what's up? Oh, Tom, so much. But we're talking about the elections coming up, and I believe and I'm very thankful for those who fought and died for us to get the vote, for African Americans to get the vote. And also to the uh, gentleman who called and said that Glass feels like it's going through his veins when they talk about the founding fathers. I... I I have experienced that, too. Hmm. And as far as the gentleman who called and said that black people need to do something, well, we do. We are doing something. Every morning that every black person gets out of bed and put their feet on the floor and go back out into the world, go to work or whatever, we are doing something. Don't dismiss that. Because if the people, the black people who came before us, if they had stayed in bed, if they had not had the courage to get up and put their feet on the floor every day and go out and face, knew what they were facing, knew what they were going to face, but they did it anyway every day. That is something. And knowing what you were facing, death, I mean, even to this day, if I go to the supermarket, I can be shot down for doing nothing. So nothing's really changed. Yeah. And as far as voting, if I had the right kind of money, I would not have to cast a vote. And my issues and concerns would be addressed. Yeah. My, my... And the fact that black people have been voting Democratic, Democratic or voting for the Democrats all these years, and with black women being known as the base and the, and the you know, the way black women fight for a Democratic Party and Democratic candidates. And they are nowhere in the Democratic Party in the high echelon. So, I mean... Oh, you've got a number of black women in leadership in the Democratic Party. In the House, you've got... Um... Uh, several black what about the DNC and the DCCC? I mean, where the real decisions are made. Yeah, Donna, Donna Brazil ran the DNC, John. 
Joan, I got to run. Thank you for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Embattled Vote in America from the Founding to the Present by Alan J. Lichtman. This is from the introduction titled Voters and Non-Voters. On February 18, 1965, advocates for the voting rights of disenfranchised African Americans ordered a rare nighttime march in the small town of Marion, Alabama, part of the state's Black Belt, to protest the jailing of James Orange. Prosecutors had charged Orange with contributing to the delinquency of minors after he enlisted students in voter registration drives. Alabama state troopers responded to the protest by beating peaceful demonstrators with billy clubs and sending terrified marchers fleeing into the night. Some sought refuge from police violence in a nearby restaurant, Max Cafe. State troopers followed them into the establishment, however, and one of those troopers, James Bonnard Fowler, fatally shot an unarmed 26-year-old black voting rights worker, Jimmy Lee Jackson. Insisting that Jackson had reached for a gun, Fowler claimed self-defense. Eyewitnesses told a very different story. They said that Jackson was trying to protect his mother from police violence and that Fowler shot him deliberately and without provocation. While Jackson languished in a hospital for eight days before dying from his wound, Alabama officials issued a warrant for his arrest for the assault of a police officer. They did not arrest, indict, or discipline Fowler or even release his name to the public. Fowler remained on the state police force, and a year later he shot and killed another unarmed black man, Nathan Johnson Jr., during an altercation at the Alabaster City Jail. State police officials were quick to purge both killings from Fowler's personnel file, but fired him in 1968 for assaulting his white police supervisor. In 2007, as part of a federal state effort to reopen cold cases from the civil rights era, Alabama prosecutors indicted the 73-year-old Fowler for murder. Two weeks before trial was set to begin in 2010, Fowler pleaded guilty to manslaughter and served five months of a six-month sentence. Fowler died in 2015, 50 years after killing Jimmy Lee Jackson. Americans were dying for the vote more than 175 years after the nation's founding because the framers made a consequential mistake when they drafted the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the Constitution's first ten amendments. They failed to enshrine in these pivotal documents of our democracy the right to vote, not just for men or even only white men, but for any American. Among many enumerated rights that the government cannot abridge, the right to vote remained conspicuously absent and remains so to this day. All subsequent amendments protecting the voting rights of racial minorities, women, and young people, the 15th Amendment on race, the 19th Amendment on sex, 26th Amendment on age, are framed negatively, stipulating not what the states must do to ensure people's voting rights in America's democratic republic, but what they cannot do. Jimmy Lee Jackson died, one could plausibly argue, because the political leaders who drafted these amendments perpetuated the framers' mistake of failing to establish an affirmative right to vote. Jackson died because white supremacists who controlled southern governments had circumvented the 15th Amendment's prohibition against denying the right to vote, quote, on account of race, color, or condition of previous servitude. They did so through patently discriminatory, although seemingly race-neutral, restrictions such as poll taxes and literacy tests. As the pioneers of modern democracy, the founders understood that the right to vote grounds all other rights that it empowers Americans to become participants in government rather than mere petitioners. But it was their omission of voting rights that triggered a war over America's embattled vote that continues to rage in the halls of Congress and in the courtrooms of federal judges. Yet, as in Marion, Alabama, it has spilled into the streets, too, with life and death at stake and the ongoing struggle for people's right to consent in their governing. Opposition to voting rights for all Americans has revolved around three critical issues. Despite the revolutionary rallying cry of no taxation without representation for most of U.S. history, the American political leadership has considered suffrage not a natural right, but a privilege bestowed by government on a political community restricted by considerations of wealth, sex, race, residence, literacy, criminal conviction, and citizenship. The notion of privileged access to the vote survives into our own time, albeit in subtler forms than in the past. Since the early republic, proponents of a limited vote have waved the banner of voter fraud. In earlier times, to justify the disenfranchisement of supposedly corruptible people such as the propertyless workers, women, racial minorities, or immigrants.
Today it is the allegations of such forms of alleged election fraud as voter impersonation, repeat voting, voting by non-citizens, or balloting in the name of dead people that are used to justify restrictive measures like voter photo ID laws or draconian purges of registration rolls. Numerous studies have documented that such voter fraud is vanishingly small in recent elections, but the outcry continues as loudly as ever. Disputes over the vote have been intensely partisan, with principal justifications for voting restrictions functioning as thinly masked attempts to favor one party over another. From the end of Reconstruction through the early 20th century, for example, it was the lily-white Democratic Party that benefited politically from suppressing the African-American vote. In recent years, the partisan calculations have reversed, as African-Americans have become the most reliable of Democratic voters, and Republicans have come to depend on the white vote. The book, The Embattled Vote in America, by Alan J. Lichtman. Tyrone in Harlem, New York. Hey, Tyrone, what's up? Hey, Tom, how you doing? Good. Thanks for taking my call. I love Joe Madison, and I would listen to him all the time also. We have to recognize that the problem, the big problem we have is we never did what Martin Luther King said. We need to judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And we, we, we can't do it because we have a horrible habit of judging people by the stereotype that we hear about them. All white people's this, all black people's that, and we don't get past it. And what also don't help it is that the fact that there are still some people, well, I'm going to say some white people in America that have never even seen a black person in person. They may know about them on television, and I, and I said this before to um, a friend of mine, and he said, no, not in this country. Everybody have, I said, no, there are some pockets of this country that people are in their own little area where they don't deal with anybody other than their own people. Well, I'll take it beyond and that, Tyrone. I'll, I would bet that somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 plus percent of white people have never in their lives had at least a meaningful interaction with a black person. Absolutely. And that, and it is so bad because they go on the stereotypical idea of sure. how black people live. And we, we do the same thing. And I got to say, I've, I've lived here 56 years in Harlem and I've traveled down south and back. And I've never had a white person come up to me and call me the N word. And that, that has a lot to do with what King, you, Joe Madison, anybody that pushed the idea that you should not dehumanize any human being. <laughs> you understand? Yeah. It's saying, listen, we all have to live here together. This earth is going to be here when all of us are dead and gone. You know, we're only here for a minimum amount of time, and we need to learn how to make the best out of the time that we're here as opposed to trying to stab each other in the back and kill each other for for, for nickels or pennies. You know, because after all, when they put you in the ground, none of that's going to matter. Yeah. So we, we need to learn how to live here, you know, together and make the best of our best out of our life while we're here now. Profound, Tyrone. Thank you very much. That That's profound. Julie in Flagstaff, Arizona. Hey, Julie, what's up? Hi. Um, I want to say, yeah, Tyrone, this earth is going to be here when we're all dead and gone. And I grieved for a month when Trump was elected. It was it felt like such a personal, I mean, an endless defeat. And I woke up and made several conclusions or life changes because Joe Madison, I think most of us cannot reasonably sacrifice a career, life, or marriage or politics. But my three changes were, one is Sonia Sotomayor's recommendation to do an act of human kindness and a thoughtful act of human kindness every day. Yeah, it's the old Boy Scout my motto. One. Do a good deed. Oh, good. My second one is make recurring donations, not just a one-off, you know, mm -hmm. to organizations um, like Southern Poverty Law Center, ACLU, or Free Speech TV. The third one was to is to make emails, phone calls, or sign petitions regularly online. Um, there's dispute about how much. Um, emails and signed petitions are help, but Bernie says they help. What do you think? Do we do we only have to make phone calls? 
No, I love your list, Julie. You know. I think each person has to look at themselves, at their life, at their circumstances, at, at the resources and tools that they have available to themselves and, and make those decisions about what is it that, what am I going to do? Each one of us has to make that. And I love your three, uh, your three things. Julie, thank you for the call. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy really, I mean, the whole idea of democracy is the demos. It's us, right, the people. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.